Welcome to, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but welcome to the 53rd uh, podcast that uh, we've done, uh, which is since February, so that's, um, and it's September as we recorded it, uh, which um, which blows my mind. It'll be no surprise that I'm joined uh, by Anna here this evening, uh, which is fantastic, but I'm, I'm really delighted to be joined by Glenn Hanna. And so Glenn is an assistant professor of medicine um, in the Harvard Medical School, having completed his fellowship training in haematology and medical oncology at Dana-Farber in 2016. He's got a strong interest in immuno-oncology, particularly related to head and neck cancer. And the reason we've asked Glenn to come on is uh, he presented at the poster session at ASCO and he, he presented around uh, the contract one trial and in particular checkpoint inhibitors in transplant patients. And so we recently did an evaluation of the podcast and, and, and the theme that came through most is that people wanted to talk about what we do in the organ transplant patients. Is there any data out there to support us? Um, and what are people doing in real life? Because, you know, studies are one thing, but we've all got one or two patients in busy clinical practices. And when these come along, they can be scary. We can be unsure on what to do. Um, Anna, as you know, as many of you will know, Anna's got some experience in this space. Um, and uh, Glenn was first author on this poster. And so I think it would be great for us to get into this space uh, today. So just as a con, uh, as a little bit of context for those who are less familiar, I just wanted so that the study that we're going to talk about is is going to be in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, and as you'll know, Anna and I both treat that that tumor type. And so just as a little bit of context, though, for that tumor type, traditionally we use chemotherapy or EGFR inhibitors. The response rate was relatively poor. The survival was, you know, just over a year. And even if people did respond to chemotherapy, they often relapsed quickly. And then there was a study which is called the Empower study, which is a phase two study in just under 200 patients. It had three different arms, but to keep it simple, there was a metastatic and locally advanced arm. But that trial excluded patients with organ transplants. Now, the data was really strong. So it used semiplumab, a drug given every three weeks, a PD-1 inhibitor, and the response rate was roughly around 50% with a, an, an even better disease control rate. So no doubt that immunotherapy works in this space, but still left open that question of what do we do in those patients with organ transplants? And we all know this group of patients tend to be quite elderly, tend to be immunosuppressed as one of the risk factors. And so this is a really important question with these patients, but clearly important in lots of other tumours too. So, Glenn, I wonder if you could just talk us through the the thought process behind why this study was important. Maybe just paint us a picture about the study, if you could. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Ricky and Anna. And this is um, this is a really important study, although small. It's a really important first signal, as as you highlighted very nicely. This is this particular trial was designed as an investigator-sponsored study with support of Regeneron using their anti-PD-1 semiplumab, specifically in a renal or kidney transplant population. So patients had to have an incurable or advanced, you know, metastatic or unresectable cutaneous squamous cell of any site, typically head and neck, as you would expect. And we um, designed the trial so that all patients would have standardized immunosuppression. We took them off of, let's say, their, their um, tacrolimus, their calcineurin inhibitors, 
and we transition them to an mTOR inhibitor, either everolimus or serolimus with monitoring of their dose levels by blood uh, assessment. And we gave them prednisone 10 milligrams daily. That was for a lead-in period of about a week. And then the patient received after screening and switching their immunosuppression, they started the simiplumab. And the simiplumab was dosed flat dose, 350 milligrams, 350 milligrams IV every three weeks as a standard. And the patients would continue the immunosuppression. And as we'll talk about in a moment, there was a design of this pulse dosing of prednisone around the time of each dose every three weeks of the checkpoint inhibitor. The rationale for that actually came from a New England Journal uh, com commentary that was published in one patient with nivolumab and a history of a transplant using a similar strategy. We felt like an mTOR inhibitor was a good choice because even though calcineurin inhibitors have better tolerability um, and are often used chronically in transplant, in the setting of cancer, as many of you know, there's clear data for cancer prevention secondarily with the use of mTOR inhibitors. So we figured, and by the way, as all of you know, uh, mTOR inhibitors are by themselves an anti-tumor agent and approved for some tumor types. So we felt like those reasons were enough to standardize the immunosuppression to mTOR-PRED and felt like it was compelling enough to do a trial. The trial was designed with a primary safety endpoint so that essentially we enrolled patients sequentially. And if we saw more than, I think we had said about two out of three patients had an immediate or early rejection event, we would stop and reassess our approach. Long story short, we got to six patients with no rejection and said, okay, something's going well here. And then ultimately completed the trial with 12 patients and all patients are in even now post reporting of this at ASCO, all are without rejection. So it was a really exciting opportunity to engage these patients. They've been wonderful to help. And I really believe this is sort of a starting place for building on this approach uh, and really making IO an, op an option for at least kidney transplant recipients. Okay, fantastic. So Anna, I'd be keen to come to you. So thinking about that, that pulse spread around the, the treatment, in my experience, when I do run steroids alongside uh, somebody who's uh, going to receive immunotherapy, admittedly not necessarily in the transplant space, I tend to want to hold the steroids on the day of treatment. I, I've got no data. Well, I, I'm not aware of data that tells me that's the right thing to do, but I do it. I wonder what your thoughts are around the the steroid dosing, and, and, and then maybe onto onto then the mTOR. Because again, in my experience, when I do have a patient come into me to be treated with an organ transplant, they're not normally on mTOR inhibitor, and I've never thought to change somebody to an mTOR inhibitor. So thoughts. Okay, so I think uh, regarding the steroid dosing, first of all, I think essentially we're not, we don't have any data really up to now to, to tell us what to do. So, and I think we have got quite a lot of data sort of in the early introduction phase of, of checkpoint inhibitors that suggests a dose of more than 10 milligrams being a concern. So I think that's always interesting and in the back of our minds. But Conversely to that, we know in, for example, the lung cancer studies where we're using combo of chemo and immunotherapy, we're using big doses of dexamethasone around the dosing. So it's actually really difficult to know. 
We also know from quite a lot of data that when we look at cellular um, activation following checkpoint inhibitors, that actually that happens relatively quickly. So you get you get sort of within within you know a few a few hours to a few days, depending on the patient, we get that immune activation and we see activation of of, of uh, T cells. So it makes sense to actually use steroids around the dose time that you're dosing the checkpoint inhibitor to try and pr essentially protect that transplant. So that make that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's difficult to know. We always say, you know, are we are we abrogating a response? And I think you might be, but equally in these patients, you have a very tricky um, tightrope to walk where you've got a cancer you need to treat, an immune immune um, system that you need to both be activated and and managed at the same time. And you've got a, you've got a, a transplant that really, for two reasons, you want to keep one because it makes patients' com lives complicated if you end up dialysing them. But also, quite a lot of these patients have had transplants from from loved ones or family members, and they are very very emotionally connected to those transplants. So actually, transplant rejection is a bigger deal in some cases than maybe we think about with it just being the biology. So you've got this this sort of repertoire of considerations, and so that kind of pulse prednisolone around the time that you're giving treatment to sort of essentially give some form of protection to the to the transplant actually theoretically makes quite a lot of sense so it's really quite nice here to see that that plays out and actually we see that response that's fairly much in line with what you see in the non-transplant community in terms of mTOR I think it's a really interesting question so I have had a couple of my transplant patients have been changed through more um, basic science data from tacrolimus to um, serolimus in my patient population um, and certainly I've been having lots of conversations with my nephrology colleagues about whether the data is strong enough to do this, why you would do this. Quite a lot of the nephrologists haven't got that much experience with serolimus, but know that it can be used. So I think it's a really interesting question. But also, I think there are some nephrologists, particularly transplant nephrologists, that are already starting to do this. So again, this, this data and this study is beautifully placed because actually we can now start having a much more sensible conversation about the fact that that seems like quite a real, realistic and reasonable thing to do. And again, mTOR inhibitors, interestingly, probably oncologists, certainly kidney cancer specialists, have probably got more comfort with mTOR inhibitors than they do with things like tacrolimus, ironically. So in this setting for oncologists, it both makes biological sense. As Glenn was saying, it has a um, it has an anti-cancer effect anyway. Um, and also probably um, oncologists may feel more comfortable, certainly with everolimus, than they have with, with other more traditional um, uh, immunosuppressants. But we aren't using them widely. So certainly in the UK practice, the vast majority of patients will be on tacrolimus plus or minus a very low dose of PRED, normally around five milligrams. And some of them have got MMF as well, although most patients have had their MMF phased out over a period of time. So this is a big shift for our community, but certainly there are rumblings that this is the right thing to do from, from more basic science data. So I think this is a really good timing and potentially a really sensible and intuitive regime that will, will sit well with oncologists. Okay, so before I bring Glenn in to talk about the response rate and come back to that in a second, Anna, just for the audience with that, that pharmacology that you teach us every now and then, the names sound similar to me, tacrolimus, serolimus, everolimus. Are they the same group? Are they in any way related to each other or are they completely different? They are sadly completely different. Um, yes, they sound like they are. So they both sound like, so serolimus and tacrolimus, you think, oh, they're both calcineurin inhibitors, but they're not. So mTOR inhibitors are essentially, they, they're they a growth cascade blocker um, and an inhibitor and actually um, modify the immune response via that cascade of signaling um, and recruitment rather than um, specifically about T-cell activity. So they work completely differently, um, which, is a bit of, which is a bit of a problem. And probably actually that might actually have 
have to be a conversation that some people on the call might have when they're starting to have those conversations with different people. Um, and they're, they're monitored very differently and dosed very differently. So yes, they sound the same, but they are not, in fact not, not the same. So it is important to think about making a shift because you're making a complete class, a class switch essentially. Okay, so so Glenn, maybe if you can walk us through the response rate and how that compares to the sort of historical response rate I've mentioned with the Empower study of you know around fifty percent, and then I'd be interested, you know, that Everlimus Cirolimus, and again, this may be a difficult question, so I apologise. Is there any preference for one or the other? Do we know? Do we know one's better than the other? You know, do we have anything to guide us? Yeah, so we were really, I mean, I have to say, when we designed the trial, frankly, my concern was rejection. And so for me, response was like, oh, you know, silver lining. I was fully, fully expecting to see muted response rates for reasons that, you know, Anna pointed out that essentially these are patients where their immune system was a little bit you know, disconnected or modified. So the immunosuppression could be suppressing any potentially beneficial anti-tumor activity um, generated by the, the checkpoint inhibitor. Um, although we recognize the mTOR inhibitor was at a dose that was lower, but might be sufficient enough to have its own anti-growth potential. So we started to see some responses and I will say it's, it was pretty dichotomous. And I think this reflected in the slides I had presented. Patients either responded very quickly and did well for long periods of time as we do see with the durability of checkpoint, or they progressed very quickly and either went on to hospice or were able to get an alternative second agent before quickly passing away. So it's a very abrupt sort of signal of response or no response. And granted, it was 12 patients, 11 of which were evaluable. We saw a response rate around 45% by RESIST. Um, what was interesting and didn't really come across yet in the presentation, but we do delineate in the, the manuscript, is that the distant disease, the nodal burden, the in-transit METs from the primary event, the sentinel event, responded well to the I.O., but sometimes even on treatment months or years later, the patient would crop up with new primaries. And we would still need to engage our dermatology most surgeons to co-manage these new primaries, despite the robust, durable response to the sentinel, if you will, cutaneous event. So for example, a patient might have had, you know, a bad skin squame, parotid involvement, neck nodes, and mediastinal involvement as their sentinel events responsive to the IO. And then six months later, they would get a shin squame. And so we would be dealing with these sort of breakthrough secondary events with surgery, in some cases, surgery and even local radiation while continuing the immunotherapy. I think the question of um, Everolimus or Serolimus, we sort of answered in the trial, largely due to my transplant nephrology colleague, Dr. Naoka Murakami, but essentially preferentially chose Serolimus for reasons that it's better tolerated, it has less angioedema concerns and toxicity profile, and in general, um, is a little bit easier in terms of modifying sort of dosing and optimizing the um, the pharmacokinetics. So for that reason, um, most of the patients, I would I think if I have to recall, nine of our eleven patients that, or nine of our twelve were on serolimus. So we're planning an, a follow up trial, which I can mention later. But that trial will primarily use just serolimus to keep it simple. 
Okay, that makes it really interesting. So, Anna, thoughts about that Cyrilimus going forward question in terms of, you know, where where does that where does that leave us? You know, in in the UK where we're not using so much of that, if we said tomorrow to our transplant colleagues, you know, you, you've, we've had this patient referred, we, we we're thinking of treating them, but we've got this data and we're thinking of switching their immunosuppression. What kind of response do you think we're going to get? Where do we go with that? I actually think we get a good response. I, I think, again, and we, we sort of navigate the immunotherapy and immunotoxicity field and sort of a lot of stuff that we're handling is sort of new every time to, to the group of oncologists that are sort of primarily looking after these patients. But actually, serolimus, although not as widely used, um, probably because once you've got tacrolimus dosing down and you know what, what dose level you're aiming for, everybody finds it quite easy. Um, certainly, nephrologists are, are using serolimus. We can certainly get it in the UK. We've not got an issue with that. Um, I think we just have to be quite clear. And I think I, I feel like this with quite a lot of the drugs that we use. One of the things that sort of is slightly different from oncologists is we like really robust protocols. Now, whenever we're talking about the, the use of um, some of the more sort of traditional immunosuppressants or even the biologics when you talk to rheumatology and um, gastroenterology colleagues and and nephrology colleagues to some degree because these drugs have evolved and they're very comfortable with their use they don't necessarily have robust protocols in the same way that we do partly because they don't have loads of SACT that we've had to develop protocols for. So I think that's one thing that probably sets us apart. And actually, it would be useful to develop maybe even an international protocol, maybe from the trial protocol that that, that Glenn's used and potentially what he's going to use going forward. And that actually we then have a standardised protocol that we can have a conversation about, because I think that will actually get us one step further. There's comfort with the drug, the dosing and the adjustment of the dosing and the target um, levels that we're aiming for are all things that I think can be open to interpretation and it would be nice to eliminate that interpretation before it's begun. Um, so I think that would be the one thing that I think would be useful as we think about adopting this approach in the UK. Because certainly at the moment with my patients, I will have a conversation with their transplant um, physician and say, right, so what are we doing? And often the conversation is, well, do we try and reduce down the dose as much as possible to where it's beneficial and then we'll give treatment? And you're like, well, what is that dose? And do we need to look, you know, is it is it that we drop it so far that we start to see signs of rejection and that's too far? So I think actually this standardised approach will take away a lot of that conversation where I think we are possibly um, running quite close to the wire in terms of risking the, the transplant rejection in favour of the immunotherapy response. And, and actually, I don't think we need to do that. Certainly, I don't do that anymore with my, tra I don't do that with my transplant patients. I keep them on exactly the regime that they've been on and stable on and, and introduce their immunotherapy. And that does tend to work, but it means you've got a very variable, non, non-standardised approach. And as you know, Ricky, that, that makes me twitchy. I like to have a standardised protocol for most things. Um, and this certainly would would uh, would elude itself to that. Okay, so and I just want to yeah, go, go, go for it. Yeah. Can I say, keep in mind, Evan Lipson's group from Hopkins uh, did present data the year prior with nivolumab and ipilimumab, nivolumab first in a basket trial of other non-melanoma skin cancers, but including squamous cell cutaneous and used tacro. And unfortunately there were rejection events. So he, you know, when he added ipi, he was able to get some responses, but even Evan recognizes, you know, putting our data in parallel that right now, based on what we have prospectively, the mTOR inhibitor strategy should be probably preferred as an as an assessing, you know, as our trials evolve going forward. Right. So I think that's really powerful, really powerful. So uh, Anna, 
the what you do in real life we're going to do in podcast too because I, I i really want to do that I, I knew you were going to jump the gun but that's okay i'm going to forgive that one glenn just just before we get into that bit two things i want to ask you one is on the trial protocol or or when we were doing the serolimus was it the transplant team who were guiding the dose levels? How, is it an easy thing to dose? Is it? I know nothing about it. So is it? Is do you have like a a level that you try and get it in? Is it pre level? Po- uh, just cue my ignorance on that stuff. Yeah. So um, in general, I turned to my nephrology colleagues. I had a very um, uh, an exceptional uh, transplant nephrologist who I partnered with at my institution, who helped to make sure that she was reviewing the the levels that we were observing, because um, obviously that's not a drug that I use or monitor routinely in my clinic. So what we would do logistically was we'd actually ask the patient to meet with her and myself um, uh, during the consult visit go over sort of our plans to switch the immunosuppression, she would make the change of tapering off the prior immunosuppressant, and then she would be the one to recommend the dosing of serolimus. Um, tr- you know, so traditional doses have been between like one and five milligrams necessarily. Um, in some instances, we were usually getting people pretty low to start uh, at like one milligram. And then um, she would monitor their trough levels to keep them in range around, I think it was four to six nanograms per ml. So we would assess those labs every week, believe it or not, in the beginning, just to make sure that the immunosuppression level wasn't under or over dosed. And then um, as I mentioned before, pulse the prednisone on a 40 milligram 2010 schedule around the time of dosing, but 10 milligrams otherwise for the prednisone. So that's, you know, and again, she, when I'd see the patient at the visit, I would say, are you taking your serolimus? But then when the level came back, I would forward it to Dr. Murakami and say, are we comfortable with this range? Is there anything we would adjust? There are also some examples like it was during COVID, some patients had to go on other medications or or antibiotics, and she would say, oh, hold the dose or check another level to make sure, given the SIP interactions, although they're a little less with, with serolimus is my understanding. So we were, it was a concert effort, and I think that is an important point. I am an oncologist, and I definitely need a transplant nephrologist working with me to execute this. And I think what's good is that there are many of them. There are a lot of great renal transplant centers throughout the country. And most institutions, moderate, medium to large size, have at least one person who's comfortable with these immunosuppression regimens. So they can be your partner in understanding how to dose the, the drug. But those are the practical points, you know, low dose, one mg, four to six nanogram per ml range dosing with levels every one to two weeks initially. And then when you're in steady state, you know, every cycle. Right. Um, and just one final question on the study design, um, Glenn, is the PRED that that sort of pulsed, you know, around the treatment date, did they carry on with a dose of PRED for the whole time or was there any point they came off the PREDs uh, completely? Yes. This is a good point. So everybody stayed on the prednisone pulse the entire time they were on the drugs, the simiplumab, whether it was one cycle or a hundred cycles. And that was because we, you know, starting point. But to your so they would take 40 milligrams the day before simiplumab, 40 the day of, 20, 20, 20 for days two, three, and four, and then drop to 10. So they would stay on 10 again until the day prior to their next infusion. And what you could argue is that given the high risk of rejection in you know that four to 10 week or four to eight week period, 
people had asked us, well, if someone's 10, 12, 13 cycles in, could you stop doing the, the, the pulsing and just leave them on 10? We didn't do that. We left people on because that's how we prospectively designed the trial. But it is a good question. You know, once they're out of the high risk rejection period, could you just get away with, you know, 10 milligrams persistently with the Everolimus or Serolimus? Anna? I just wanted to um, ask a little bit about, uh, did you do any tra uh, translational work on the new SCCs that these patients got once they were on treatment and having their sentinel responses? I just wonder whether there was a, any TCR work that you were looking at doing in terms of um, that that new, those new primaries essentially secondary to the ones you were treating from, a, from an advanced perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. The short answer is planned work. So Dr. Murakami actually has a lab and she plans to, um, I'll mention a couple of the correlatives. One is we collected urine for urine cytokine analysis as an exploratory marker to understand whether cytokines released in the urine could be a hint towards potential rejection or immune response. There's some data for CXCL9 and 10, for example, preliminarily. So she's going to bank and collect those samples, which is nice because it's pretty easy to collect standard urine at room temperature and submit. We collected blood samples at different time points for fresh flow. So um, facts to understand the immune profile peripherally. And we did do paired um, pretreatment biopsies of the tumor as well as on treatment. There were, to your point, and I think we had one or two patients who had subsequent primaries biopsied, and the plan would be to genomically sort of phenotype those, understand if they come from the same lineage and whether there are any alterations that suggest there was sort of immune resistance that allowed those to evolve. Um, but that work is all kind of up for grabs. The, we wanted to get the clinical manuscript out as fast as possible because this is such important data. And you'll note when you see it, uh, hopefully there, you'll notice the clinical manuscript does have baseline targeted sequencing data for all the patients and it, um, and it or most of them. And it has um, a little bit of smattering of circulating tumor DNA findings from some of the patients. Um, finally, we did track donor-derived cell-free DNA, which, as you probably know, based on whether one assay or another, CareDx or Natera's um, Prospera, is clinically in use for patients to monitor for rejection, right? So using this DNA derived from the donor transplant that damage apoptosis from the transplant as a potential marker of early rejection. So we do have some data we share in the manuscript on those trends, although we didn't observe any documented rejection or biopsy any kidneys, thankfully. Evan Lipson also used CareDx DDCFDA uh, in his work, and we'll be sharing that too. That's really interesting. So um, we've been talking about, so I, um, I've treated a patient with a heart transplant relatively recently um, due to very high risk melanoma. Um, obviously a different different patient group, different um, uh, uh, checkpoint inhibitor, but we were talking about using uh, donor antibodies as a, as a marker of rejection. And um, I think there is, there is potentially really something quite interesting there. Um, as to whether we can sort of do that subclinical recognition and then and then change our regime. So I think that's got huge potential in the future in terms of managing these patients and, and across more tumor sites. Great. So look, I knew this would happen. So let's bring this one to a, to a close. Let's pick up in number two and we'll open up with Glenn explaining where they may be going next. And then I want to get into the bit that everyone's going to be asking is, what are we doing in real life? What transplant patients we're willing to do in real life? How we'll monitor their renal function? What we'll do with steroids and immunosuppression? 
I can't wait to get into that next time. So I look forward to seeing you on the second podcast and hopefully others will join us. Thank you both. Thanks, Ricky. Thank you so much.